Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, no, today is not backwards day, although it might seem like it with, uh, with uh, Pastor Jeff leading the music and me doing the preaching and Shane filling in for Matt. But uh, the Lord is good. We'll get the job done. Um, our text for this morning will be Psalm 130 as we continue to kind of bounce around the book of Psalms. So uh, please turn there with me if you would and follow along as I read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Or Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Please pray with me before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look at your scripture here this morning, we ask that you would give us your blessing and that you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit to understand your word. We cannot by our own strength and will fully understand, so we ask for your help. Father, open our eyes to your truth and plant it deep in us. Use it to mold us into the likeness of your Son even today. And Lord, I ask that you would use this sermon to edify and encourage your people. And we ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Okay, Psalm 130. Now, I've been considering this psalm for a couple months now. And though it has only eight verses, it is just overflowing with truths regarding God and his holiness, the truths about our condition, and about trusting in God and in Him alone for salvation. Martin Luther absolutely loved the psalm, and it was he that described it as being Pauline. Not written by Paul, but, uh, but Pauline in that what you have here is salvation by grace, apart from the works of the law, through faith. Now, I don't have an outline for this sermon today, as much as I tried to make one. I don't have the traditional three points, and I barely even eked out a title. You'll see in your notes, blank page with a little title up top. <laughs> but at least I got that far. But um, So today, what we're going to do is just go through verse by verse and see what we see. I do have uh, several observations to point out along the way. And I guess the first observation would be to understand the uniqueness of the book of Psalms as a whole. We know that the Psalms are poetry. They are the songbook for the nation of Israel. And being poetry, they communicate God's truth to us in a different way than other parts of Scripture do. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who's quoted as saying that while the Bible speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. And what is meant by this is that 
the Bible, as God's written word, of course, speaks to us and teaches about God and who he is and, and what he is like. It is God's revelation of himself to mankind. It also speaks to us about who we are and how we are to act in response to what God has done for us. But the Psalms, while they also contain great teaching about God, they also describe for us what it is like to try to live for him in a fallen world and in fallen flesh. They actually speak for us as the writers go through life on this earth and record their experiences for us and record their thoughts and their emotions. And as we read, we discover that the psalmist expresses the same thoughts that we have and the same experiences and and circumstances and struggles with life on this earth as we search for a closer relationship with God and try to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. They speak about our feelings of frustration, of despair and confusion, but also our feelings of love and joy and peace. In fact, one of the psalmists put it this way in Psalm 66. He says there in verse 5, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. And then he goes on in verse 16 and he says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what God has done for my soul. This is what so many of the Psalms do over and over. They tell us about what, has, what God has done for the soul of the believer. And so many times we find the psalmist speaking about the very same things that happen to us, often describing our situation for us in ways and in words that, that we couldn't find to describe it. And I pray that we'll find that to be true here this morning with Psalm 30, or 130. And there's one more thing I'd like to point out before we get into the main part of the text, and that is the superscription. The superscription is the God-inspired title for the psalm. It is part of the inspired word of God. So please notice the title of this psalm. Not the editor's title, which in the ESV uh, is, My Soul Waits for the Lord. And in the NASB, I believe it's um, Hope in the Lord's Forgiving Love. Not those, but the superscription, where it says, A Song of Ascents. Or it may say, A Song of Degrees, meaning Steps or a song of pilgrimage, depending on which version you have, of course. Psalms 120 to 134 are all called songs of ascents, and they were called that because they were most likely sung as the Jews from all over Israel would make the trek to Jerusalem for one of the three yearly feasts that God had ordained for them in the Old Testament. And as they would walk along in their pilgrimage, to come and meet with God and his people, they would sing these songs as they ascend the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. Now you would think, as you come along on your journey to meet with God and with his people, 
and you begin to ascend the mountain and the excitement begins to build and you'd be singing, a, you would think that you'd be singing a song of joy, of anticipation or celebration. And many of the songs of ascents are like that, but Psalm 130 is different. It doesn't fit that mold at all. In fact, it couldn't be farther from that, at least in the beginning. You see, not only is it a song, a song of ascents, but it is also an individual lament and one of the seven penitential psalms, psalms that express sorrow and regret for having done wrong. The most uh, well-known of which is Psalm 51, where, of course, David pours out his heart to God, repenting and begging for forgiveness of his sin. So how is it, do you think, that a penitential psalm where the psalmist is lamenting over his sin, got to be one of the songs of ascents, which was sung as they walked up the mountain towards Jerusalem. Well, I think it's the same thing that we saw when we went through Psalm 24 together last time. Remember, David asked the question, Who shall, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? And what we talked about there is the same thing that the psalmist feels here, which, which is that as he ascends the mountain and he thinks about what he's doing and where he was going, and he realizes that he realizes in his soul that he's about to come near to the presence of the holy living God in the temple, that suddenly he becomes very aware of his sin very aware that this is serious business. Not to be afraid to come, he was commanded to come. But to come with soberness and a reverence for the God he was about to meet. And as a sidebar, this is exactly why Pastor Jeff encourages us to take a moment to consider our soul, our state, the truths of the gospel when we take pauses in the service Encouraging us to realize as we gather together here, we're meeting with the living God. And we should do so only with pure hands and a clean heart, knowing that his, He is present here with us and that He has come in a special way to commune with us here today. So keeping that in mind, let's see what the Lord has for us in Psalm 130 as we dive right in. Verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Here the psalmist gets right to the point, right out of the gate. He declares that he is in the depths. This phrase, the depths, is just loaded with meaning, and I want us to understand what he is saying here. In the Hebrew Bible, this word sometimes is just used literally for very deep water. But other times it's a symbol for deep, deep distress, as is the case here. This is not someone who's standing in water up to his knees, but his foot stuck in the mud, and he's just asking for somebody to give him a hand to pull him out of his current circumstances. And this is also not a man who is in water 
too deep for him to touch, but he's, he's treading water, but he's getting tired, and he's, he's asking for a friend to give him a hand back into the boat. No, this man is in deep, deep trouble. The waves crashed over his head. They're thrashing him about, and he no longer knows which way is up. He's losing his breath, and the waters of distress continue to wash over him and bury him. He feels helpless and hopeless and in deep despair. Now, Psalm 69 uses that same imagery. It paints a very similar picture for us as the psalmist is lamenting the unfair circumstances of his life. He says this in verses 1 through 3. He says, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched and my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And he continues in verse 14, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Now let me ask you, have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt such distress that you felt like you didn't know which way was up? Felt the pressures or the disappointments of life pressing down on you so hard that you felt like you couldn't breathe. Life can be like that sometimes, even for the Christian. Life can be confusing when you come to a place where you know that God loves you, but you don't feel loved. A place where, although you know He will never leave you, you feel so alone. A place where you pray to God to help you or just comfort you, but you get a sense that he can't hear you or just plain isn't listening. And there seems to be no hope, only loneliness and depression. If you felt that way or you are feeling that way, please understand that that is a real thing. So real, in fact, that Psalm 69 just described it for us. And the writer of Psalm 130 is feeling it too. It happens and it is real. And though life can seem hopeless at times, there is hope. And that hope is in the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. If you feel despair, cry out to him. When you feel helpless, cry out to Him. When all seems hopeless, cry out to Him. Cry out to the Lord, for He is good and His mercies endure forever. And now, we need to pump the brakes here just for a second. And I need to ask another question or two. I'm wondering how many of us who have felt like we are in the depths, or are in the depths right now, How many of us felt that because of the circumstances in your life? 
because of God's providential circumstances. You found yourself in a situation either caused by yourself or by someone else, and life is just not what you want it to be. My question is, how many of us have ever felt that kind of despair and depression over our sin? Have you ever felt such sorrow over your sin, such remorse and regret that it felt like you couldn't breathe? Felt such depression over your sin that it felt like God can't even hear you when you cry to Him? This is what the psalmist is feeling in Psalm 130. As he ascends the hill to meet with God, he is so convicted of his sin that he feels like he's drowning. He feels like Isaiah the prophet when the glory of God filled the temple and he said, I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He feels like John the Apostle who when he realized he's in the presence of the risen Christ in Revelation 1, he falls down like he's dead. And so here he cries out to God for mercy and he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? It is my sin, Lord, that has put me in this place. Life is not what I want it to be because... I want to be near you, and I want to be pleasing to you, but my sin. Oh, Lord, I cry to you, and I keep crying to you out of the depths of the misery of my sin, misery so deep that it seems like you can't even hear me. It's as if my prayers aren't going past the ceiling of my tent. It it feels like I'm screaming underwater, and no one can hear me. You can almost hear the frustration in his voice as he he tries and tries to pray in a way that, that feels like God can hear him. He says, I cry to you, O Lord. No, that one didn't seem to work. I don't think he heard that one. So he tries again. O Lord, hear my voice. Nah, no, I don't think he heard that one either. And I'm in trouble, and I really need him to pay attention to me. Perhaps if I say something more specific, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And it's, it's just fascinating to me that not only does he cry out to God in three different ways. Have you ever felt yourself doing that, by the way? When you think he can't. You know, something's blocking you. You can't, he can't, you think he can't hear you. It feels like it. So you try to say the same thing in a different way to try to create that communication. But not only does he, does he say it in three different ways, but just to cover all the bases and to try to get God's attention, he uses both of God's Old Testament names. Look at verse 1. And you see how the last word is the Lord is in all capital letters. That's referring to Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God. The God who led His people out of slavery in Egypt. Who protected them and fed them and cared for them and loved them like no other. But notice in verse 2, not all the letters in Lord are capitalized. 
This is God's other name, Adonai, which means sovereign Lord, the God of all power and might. It's like, it's like he's saying, just in case Yahweh can't hear me, I'm going to cry out to Adonai too. I cry to you, Yahweh, O Adonai, hear my voice. O God who loves me and knows that I'm in trouble, and O Adonai who is sovereign over everything and has the power to rescue me, hear my voice. And isn't it great that we have a God who not only loves us and wants the best for us, but is also the all-powerful sovereign king who can do something about it. And what is his plea? What is he crying out for? It's for mercy. And as I said earlier, the struggle over his sin is bringing despair and misery to his soul. He's tried to do better, to cut sin out of his life. He used to think that a little bit of sin was okay. At least it wasn't as bad as some others. But he's come to realize that any sin makes him unworthy to be in God's presence. What can he do? He's tried to stop, but everything he does not want to do is the very thing he finds himself doing, right? He's come to a point where he's not asking for a hand up to be, uh, so he can repent of a sin and go back with his life. He is absolutely wrestling with remorse and guilt over his sin. So he cries out, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? If the holy, all-powerful, and loving God were to keep a list of our iniquities, who could stand before him? If God were actually, if he were to actually keep track of every sin, who among the human race could go before the holy God and remain standing? Standing guiltless before him. Now, of course, we know that is a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no one. But it's also quite rhetorical that he would start the question by saying, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities. In fact, God does mark iniquities. He knows them all, and he records them all. He just withholds final judgment on them until Christ returns and we all must go before the great white throne judgment and give an account for every sin that we ever committed. So here's the psalmist saying, if you should mark iniquities, and you do, and there's truly no hope for me or for anyone else to come into your presence and live because I am a sinner and I have no way of overcoming that of my own strength. There's nothing I can do to save myself. My sin is marked down. I can't swim away from it. I can't do enough good things to outweigh it. I can't wash it off. The pain and the guilt of it are weighing me down and pulling me under and all seems helpless and hopeless. But, but, The psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness. Again, the most glorious three-letter word in all of Scripture. But, there seemed to be no hope, but there is hope. 
There is no way to earn your way there. But there is hope. With God, there is forgiveness. Now, please notice here that it does does not say that with you, God, there is understanding. That we are all sinners and none of us is quite able to get it, so you grade on a curve. And as long as you're better than the average person, you'll get a pass. No, it does not say that. And it it also doesn't say, with you, Lord, there is a logical system of our good outweighing our bad. And as long as we have more on the good side, we are in. No. In fact, God says that everything that you would put on the good side is actually filthy rags and it all belongs on the bad side. And so there's actually nothing on your good side. No, there is nothing that we can do. The only way that a person can stand is to receive forgiveness. There is no comparing who's better or who's worse. No comparing good deeds to bad deeds. Only the fact that all of us are guilty, but some of us have been forgiven. And there's only one way that a person is forgiven before God, and that is by having faith in Jesus Christ. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, only by putting your faith and trust in him will you be forgiven. And only by being forgiven will you be able to stand This is the only way, and he is the only way. Now, you know, when Laura and I went to the music conference a couple of years ago, we were privileged to be able to see and to sing along with uh, Shane and Shane. Brilliant singers, very gifted. And one of the songs that they sang is one that we're very familiar with, The Power of the Cross. And there we all were, thousands of people surrounding the stage, singing along, This the power of the cross, right? Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven. And everybody except Shane and Shane finished at the cross, right? But Shane and Shane didn't do that. They never made it past we stand forgiven. They just kept singing over and over. We stand forgiven. We stand forgiven. We stand. We stand forgiven. We stand forgiven. And thousands of us are all like, at the cross. And it was really kind of funny, but especially because the conference was all about getting the con- promoting the congregation to sing, and here they changed the song and nobody could sing it. So the next day at one of the workshops, someone asked them why they did that. Why did you... Why did you do that? And one of the Shanes just simply said, well, we just figured that that's the reason why we're all here in the first place. 
we stand forgiven. That's the whole point. If it wasn't for that, we would all be lost. But with God, there is forgiveness. Because Christ took the blame for us, bore the wrath for us, took our sin and nailed it to the cross for us so that that we can stand before a holy God and be welcomed into his presence. We can have God look down at his ledger on that final day and see the word forgiven, stamped on our account. The debt having been paid in full by the blood of his son. Now the knowledge and the understanding of this truth is supposed to have an effect on us. There is something that's supposed to happen in us as we come to understand the hopelessness and the helplessness of our sin and the fact that there is deliverance from that sin in God's forgiveness. And it's stated in the last half of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Isn't that amazing? Did did you know that the reason that God forgives is so that we would fear him? Not be afraid of him, but revere him, respect him, and love him all the more because he has done something for us that we so desperately need and cannot do on our own. He's forgiven us. He has given us Forgiveness, solely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the more we learn and understand that, the more we love him and and stand in awe of him and want to be closer to him. And of course, the closer we get to him, the more we are aware of our sin and, and the more thankful we are that he's forgiven us. And the more that we fear him, and and on and on we go. As we grow, it grows. So let's try to put this all together here. We have the psalmist in deep despair and anguish, feeling downcast and depressed. He's crying out for mercy, but it seems like no one can hear him. He's feeling the weight of his sin, and it seems hopeless. But he knows God's word. He knows there is forgiveness with him. You see, this is where our knowledge of doctrine is so important. He knows who God is and what he's like. Perhaps he's sung Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Or Psalm, or, yeah, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. It is in the depths of distress when it is the most important that we recall God's word. And even if things look bleak now, we know from his word that he is a God who is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
we see the heart of God in the scriptures and have, have learned about his character, we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. Even when we feel our heart is weakening, our, 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 our strength, our verve for him is, is weakening and we're starting to, to want to give up, but our mind is informed about the scriptures and we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. We know he is faithful and that he never changes. So the psalmist now, in the midst of his despair and trouble, relying on his knowledge of God and who he is and what he's like, understanding that his only hope is in God and in his forgiveness, he comes to the realization that waiting on God is his only hope. He can't pull himself out of the depths of sorrow and depression. He will wait on God to come to his aid. God is his only remedy for the anguish of his soul. And so he will wait and trust and wait. Not something we like to do, to be patient and wait for the Lord to act. No, we don't like that. We have a tendency to want what we want, and we want it now. And we also have a tendency to want to be rescued in the way that we want to be rescued, maybe to be restored to the way things used to be, or be restored to a life of better providential circumstances. But sometimes God just says, But it is the knowledge of God's word that enables him to wait. He says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord and my soul waits and on his word I hope. Knowing God's word and through it his character empowers him to wait on God and to wait for his promises to happen knowing that they will happen. In fact, this is what God uses to pull us out of the depths of depression and to assure us that we are loved and cared for and listened to and forgiven. He does it through His Word. What the psalmist needed in the depths was not to pull himself up by his bootstraps or to get a hand up from his friends to pull him out of his situation. What he needed was not a pep talk to make him feel better about himself. What he needed in the depths was the word of God. And this is how God comes to us to bring the mercy and the deliverance and the grace that we so desperately cry out for. Please turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 119. This beautiful psalm is a celebration of the gift that God has given us in His Word. It tells us what a blessing it is to have the Word and to keep His testimonies and to walk in His ways. But even the writer of Psalm 119 had a keen awareness of his sin. And he understood what it was like to be in the depths. But he also knew what the solution was. Let's look at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. 
Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. The psalmist is in distress. His soul clings to the dust and is melting away for sorrow. And both times, what is his request? Give me life according to your word. And strengthen me according to your word. So our psalmist in 130 has, has come to that point. The point of realizing that the best and only course of action is to wait on the Lord. And as if to emphasize what a torture it can be sometimes to wait. He, he repeats it three times again. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And again in verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord. It's like he's saying, I'm waiting. And when I get done waiting, I will wait some more because I have nothing else to do but wait. And wanting to give an example of, of what that can be like, perhaps he draws, uh, as he draws near enough to Jerusalem, he looks up and he can see the watchmen on the wall. And he says, waiting for the Lord is like being one of the night watchmen. You watch and you listen for any sign of movement. But all you have to see with is the light of the moon, the light of the stars, and maybe a few torches. And you watch, and you listen, and you wait. You wait for the morning to come, knowing that, when you're, uh, that that is when your shift will be over. But you don't have a watch to keep time, just the moon and the stars on their courses, and you wait. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. You can hear him repeat it like, more than the watchman for the morning. When's the dawn ever going to come? It can be very monotonous. It reminds me of working the graveyard shift, the 24-hour grocery store. You'd start your shift at 10.30 in the evening and get off at 7 in the morning. And so... You're always waiting for the morning because that's when you get off. And I remember being assigned to the checkout. There'd only be two of us in the building and one had to be the, you know, up front in the checkout and the other could be back doing stuff. And being up in the front was the worst because you could not leave the front. And most of the time, almost every time, between about 1 o'clock and 5 in the morning, there is not a customer in the store at all. So you try to find something to keep you busy to pass the time. Justina probably knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, what time is it? It's 1.12. Okay, I'm going to go straighten up the gum and the candy and make it look perfect. That'll take up some time. 1.17. Okay, I'm going to... Um, I am going to wipe down and sweep out every one of these check stands. 122. 
All right, it's time for my break. I'm just going to sit down for a minute. Oh, I felt like I dozed off there. That must have, it's 126. And on and on it goes. Waiting and watching. And it can be like that when we wait on the Lord. It, it seems to drag on forever. But the reason it drags on is not because God is slow to act. It's because we're impatient and discontented with our circumstances. We want the problem fixed, and we want it now, and usually we want it fixed in the way that we want it to be. But we must wait. Wait on God and hope in His Word. Wait not like the watchman for the morning, but more than the watchman for the morning. And I assure you, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, that even though it may seem like it will never get there, the morning always comes. In its perfect timing, it comes. As sure as God has placed the sun in its place and set the earth in motion, spinning on its axis, the morning will come. And as sure as you can trust God for who He is, He will answer. You may have to wait on Him for a time, but He will come. And when He comes, it will be worth the wait. Now in verses 7 and 8. There's a shift in the psalmist as, as the psalmist is no longer talking about God, but now he's talking to, or talking to God. Now he's talking to the nation of Israel. And it seems as though God has heard his cries for mercies and the morning has come. God has lifted him from the depths and assured him that he has salvation, that his sins have been forgiven. So, so what does he do? He wants to tell everyone about it. He wants to tell everyone what God has done for his soul. With a stark change of mood, having been pulled out of the depths of depression by the word of God, he exclaims to anyone who will listen, O Israel, hope in the Lord. I stand forgiven and you can too. Hope in the Lord. And he gives three reasons why they should do that. The first one being, That with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him there is loving kindness and covenant loyalty. He is a God of mercy, kindness, and never failing love. This is what the psalmist knew to be true in the depths as he relied on God's word to assure him even though he felt far away from God. But now he had experienced that loving kindness And all the things that he had read about God in his word had proven to be true. God had loved him from the depths of his sin. And he will hear you too if you cry out to him. Now the second reason he gives for Israel to hope in the Lord is because with him there is plentiful redemption. This is God's abundant mercy overflowing and spilling out This is his nature. His redemption is plentiful. It never runs low and it never runs out. It is overflowing. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is. God's grace is greater. It's overflowing. It doesn't matter how many sins you have. God's mercy is more. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There is no sin and no amount of sin 
that can add up to a need that is greater than God can supply. That's because a person is not redeemed with silver or gold. Even though, if they were, God could still cover that too. But a person is not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It doesn't matter what you have done. There's power in the blood. Come to Him. Cry out to Him. With God, there is plentiful redemption, and He has the power to save even the chief of sinners. Now, the third reason for Israel to hope in the Lord is because He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. There is a day coming when God will come with His Son and free the true Israel from all our sins. When the ransomed church of God will be saved to sin no more. There will come a time when the last of God's chosen will come to Him and He will, uh, and will be redeemed and we will be freed once and for all from sin and its penalty when all of creation will be set right again. And as surely as the morning comes for the watchman, that day will come because God says it will come. And in conclusion today, I think I'll just read Psalm 30. If you'd like to turn there with me. Psalm 30 is a psalm written by David for the dedication of the temple. It is a psalm of personal thanksgiving for God's repeated care and deliverance over the course of David's life. And it's a psalm that the editor titles, Joy Comes with the Morning. Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I say in my posterity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong and you, and you hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry and to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word and how it does reveal uh, your true heart to us, how it does teach us 
about who you are and what you are like. And we find, Lord, that we can trust your word, that it is infallible, that it never changes, and it is always true. And so far, so, Lord, when we, when we read about your love and about your faithfulness, may we always remember that even when we are in the depths of sorrow. Even if we don't feel like you are there, we know in our minds that you are there. Even if we don't feel like you hear us, we know that we have your ear because you say we have your ear. Father, we, we are astounded at the fact that with you, there is not a point system, there's not a way to work ourselves there, but there is forgiveness as far as the east is from the west, our sins have been removed. And so, Father, we are in awe of you. We love you. We respect you. We want to be closer to you. And, Father, that is my prayer, that, that through this sermon we would consider that, consider our sin and consider the distance that it puts between us, even as believers. Help us, Father, to feel the weight of our sin, to repent of our sin, and to draw near to you in your word that you may not draw near to us. And we thank you, Father, for all that you are and all that you do. We pray to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.